The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 55 of The Things We All Carry. Today's episode is part one of my conversation with Brian. Brian is one of those firemen and fire ground officers I have looked up to since joining the fire service. He is and was, at times, a larger-than-life figure in my department. One of those guys you hear others label a fireman's fireman. Brian retired roughly 16 months ago after a 34-year career, six as a volunteer, and 25 as a career guy. Drawing from an extensive fire career in which he's experienced numerous highs, lows, and absolute tragedies, Brian spent a few hours sharing his thoughts and shining a light on what we all call the job. He will be the first to tell you that he didn't do everything correctly through the years, but he'll also tell you he wants his story to serve as a cautionary tale. One purpose for coming on the show is the hope that someone can learn from him and avoid the traps and pitfalls he's fought so hard to overcome. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Joining me today is Brian. Brian is a retired fire captain out of my department. He retired about 15 months ago after 34 years of total experience. He had 25 years as a career firefighter and nine as a volunteer firefighter. And I just want to welcome him to the show and say thank you very much. Hey, thank you for having me, Stark. I think one thing I want to get into first is is what we just discussed before we came on air is the difficulty with just talking about it and why you wanted to come and talk about it. Yeah, opening up the about things has always been a hard, something that I've struggled with. I've never been able to open up and tell somebody or anyone really what is going on besides sitting down with a therapist and a couple of friends. I've never really been able to open up and talk about if something was bothering me. It just wasn't done in my family. And then when I got into the fire service in the eighties, nobody talked about anything. You ran a crappy call and you just went back and went on about your business. No one opened up and talked about it going, Hey man, that really sucked. Is there something going on? Have a trouble with that or anything like that? And even at home, it was, you've got to be tough. You don't need to be a baby. You're a man. You don't open up. You don't talk about stuff. So I never did talk about things. There was a lot of, as I told you before, a little bit of anxiety and fear about coming and telling my side of the story or my story. But the other thing is all the nasty crap that I went through or dealt with, I don't want to see other people dealing with it. And I really want people to know that even though you might be struggling, even though it seems like there's no way to get out of this, there is, there's light at the end of the tunnel. It takes work and every day there can be work. You're going to have to work on things and you start the day off. It can be a great day outside, great morning for you. And then all of a sudden something just comes in and your day turns to shit. But 
it takes work and not pushing things down, but dealing with it right then and there. I may even take a little bit of time just dealing with it, but utilizing tools that you've learned over, whether it's through therapy or opening up and just talking to somebody, it doesn't matter. There is a way out of all this. There's light at the end of the tunnel and every day might be a struggle, but it gets easier and easier as the days go on. And you also appreciate when you look back on it, where you came from, what you struggled with. And you know what? I got this. I want to beat. This isn't my life. This isn't the way my life is going to be. I'm in charge of my life and I'm going to beat whatever's happening or whatever's going through my mind. All right. So now that you've laid that out, let's get to the story. Let's get to what brought you to this point right here today. And we'll start back in what's childhood like for you? Childhood sucked. Okay. That's pretty blunt. <laughs> Go right ahead. Let's hear about childhood it. Sucked. So my parents divorced when I was really young. I think it was five, five or six. I honestly, truly don't remember how old I was. A lot of that is because of it was, it was so bad that my mind, I blanked a lot of things out. There are some things that I can remember vividly, but they're nothing but bad. A lot of bad memories. It was an ugly divorce. My brother and I ended up living with my father and my mom went off. My dad worked his butt off for us. He was in construction. Um, we didn't have a lot, but we had a roof over our head. We had food. He did everything that he could for us. Mom went, she remarried. We ended up going and living with her after a few years. There were a bunch of promises about how wonderful life is going to be and all that other stuff. And that never ended up panning out. Life, it was rough. Growing up was really rough. All I wanted to do was get back to my father's house. I just wanted to go back and live with my dad. There were a lot of, I don't know how to even put this, empty promises. And then it was thrown in my face about how bad I was. And I don't really love her and things like that. Manipulation to get me to want to stay and to get me to do things that she needed to have done. And we also bounced around. I lived in Woodbridge, Virginia, Fairfax, Virginia, Stafford, Virginia. Ended up settling in um, Dale City, Virginia in my high school years, and I hated pretty much everywhere I lived. Why do you hate everywhere you lived? Really just didn't have, there was just too much moving, so there was no time to really make a lot of friends. And most of my childhood was spent taking care of my brother and then my little sister when she was born. So I was at home all the time when my parents were at work, my mother and my stepfather were at work, and I was taking care of the kids, bringing them up, and I was there First night that my sister walked, it was us there walk. I saw all those little milestones with my sister and my parents were working. So I never got to get out and do the things that I wanted to do. When it came to sports, you know, in high school, I wanted to play football. Nope, can't play football. You got to be home taking care of things here at home. So it really, it, it sucked because I was at home all the time and I wasn't able to get out and go. It wasn't until about the time I turned 16 when I really started to get some experience, some freedom and get out of the house and hanging out with friends. During that time, I did here or there get to go out with friends prior to that, but there wasn't a lot of it. And then when we did go out, that's where alcohol started coming in. They get together with friends. Oh, wow. Look what I got. Sit around, have some beers and stuff. And it was at that time just fun because we were kids going, Hey, we're going to experiment with this stuff. Little did I know that was going to stick and become more and more later in life. But at a young age, I was experiencing, had the experience with alcohol where it was just going to parties and things like that. But 
also started noticing that, hey, it's starting to drown some stuff. This is, makes me feel good. I'm happier. And it's starting to drown crap that I'm dealing with. I didn't know it at the time and no one, I guess, really picked up on it. But through my teenage years, I was pretty depressed, especially being at home all the time. So I don't need to say it was hard. I was going to say it has to be difficult to, as, as a 15, 16, 17 year old to pick up and self-diagnose d- depression. And if you're the, if you're the father figure in the house to your brothers and sister, it, they're not going to notice it. Yeah, they didn't notice it. And then whenever I acted out or wanted to leave, I was always told that you don't love me. You don't love us. You don't want to be here. Why do you do this? You're acting like your father. So I was getting prepared to my father who I love dearly. And I was like, good. I'm acting like my dad. Good. But I was also compared a lot to my brother. Why can't you be more like him? He's got great, great, great grades in school. He's a straight A student. Why can't you be more like him? He's willing to help out and do this. And not only was I getting out at home, I also got that from my grandfather, which I really, even to this day, I don't understand. Later on, we'll get into, oh, my grandfather hated the fact that I became a firefighter. I got into the volunteer fire department. I later found out why that was. But yeah, I was always compared to someone else that you're just not doing A, B, and C. You're not doing it the way we want to do it. That really sucked and it stuck to me. And all I wanted was out. I wanted back with my dad. And then once I got to later on in my teenage years, I just couldn't wait to move out of the house. I wanted to go. When I was in high school, I was sitting, I guess I was 17. I was sitting there talking with a friend of mine. He said, Hey, why well, I'm going to go down, check into becoming a firefighter. And I'm thinking, firefighter, how in the world can you do that? We're still in school. I had no idea that there was a volunteer fire department and that you can get into it or anything like that. So he started telling me about it and we went down to the local firehouse and uh, talked to him. And I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. This is something I might be interested in. So I go home, say, Hey, I, I want to join the fire department, become a junior member. And I was told immediately, no, you're not doing that. You're not going down there. They're nothing but a bunch of drunks and they sit around and play checkers all day. And just, I don't even know where in the world that came from. Cause I'd never seen a fireman sitting around playing checkers. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I wasn't allowed to do that. So once I turned 18, my 18th birthday that, um, of that year, I went down that week, filled out the application because I could do it now. I was legal and got into the volunteer fire department and it was the best thing in the world. I fell in love with it. It was great. I got put on a great duty crew. There were everybody on my crew were at least in their late twenties to thirties. Okay. So I had older people to look up to. They had been there for a while. The two ladies that were assigned to the ambulance crew, they became mom to me. They looked after me. They took care of me. It was a very tight knit crew. And I found family at that time. I absolutely loved it because I was accepted. I wasn't looked upon in any bad way or anything like that. I was accepted immediately into that. And it was great. Yeah. And at that point, because everything that's happened up to there, had this major thirst for acceptance, I would imagine. As a teenager, yeah, there's no doubt as a teenager. I mean, uh, one of the quick little story on how I was looked after, we went, after I got my firefighter one, we ran a lot of fire. And that first six months of getting, after getting through firefighter school, I seemed like I was going to fire every time that we were on duty. And it was pretty cool. 
we ran a fire and we were inside cleaning, just doing overhaul and things like that. And at that time we had the old yellow coats, the old yellow coats, also we had three quarter boots and it was great. I missed those things to be honest with you. I know they weren't the safest, but I do miss them. I ended up getting some embers down into my coat sleeve though, and it sat there burning and I rubbed it a little bit, started running out of air, started ringing. So my Lieutenant looks at me and says, go get another bottle. Get back in here. So I run out to go get another cylinder. I knew that they were going to be looking for me. They wanted me to come over to the Amlet so they could check me out before I went back in. So I snuck outside, made sure they didn't see me, grabbed another cylinder, threw it in, came back into the house and worked for a little bit longer. Then when I came back out, they were at the front door waiting for me and boy, was I in trouble. <laughs> And then, uh, make a long story short, when they took, I took my coat off and I had a pretty nasty burn on my arm from that ember and it blistered up and everything. They wrapped my arm up, I think from my fingers all the way up to my shoulder <laughs> and I got talked to about it, but that that's the care. That's a concern. That's what I found in that volunteer organization. And it was great. And I loved it. I went down all the time. I was there every day. Taking and once I started taking more and more classes, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to do more. That really got my start in the fire service and where I fell in love with it. So what's the volunteer service? I know you, I was going to say, what's it like? I know you say it's family. You meet, you, you start to, to find family there from the people you're on the duty crew with, but what's the service like itself? What you say you run out of fires. So what sticks with you during that time? That's, well, I guess it's hard to put in the words. That was my looking for a purpose in life is I found my niche. I found where I needed to be. It was one of the things that this brought on is I found direction in my life of where I wanted to go for the longest time. I wanted to be a police officer. My stepfather was a police officer, even though him and I didn't see eye to eye or really get along. I had a lot of respect for the man and I looked up to him because of the job that he did. So when I became 18, I started applying to the department that he worked at because they had a program in place where you could go in as 18. You weren't a police officer until 21, but it was called an explorer post, but you were paid. You did jobs within the police department until you were 21. Then you went to the police academy. So I started applying for that and that was my goal. But once I got into the fire department, I realized that this is what I want to do. This is me. This is my niche in life. So that that's where it started going. We ran a lot of calls back then. There was our, in our county, we had a career department that worked Monday through Friday from seven in the morning till five at night. And then when they got off of work, volunteers came on, volunteers had it at night, weekends and holidays. And uh, so we, I was down at the firehouse a lot, ran a lot of calls. We even started coming down at night. I had a monitor at home. When that went off, I'd go down for the ladder truck or whatever other vehicle was available and get things on the road. So we did run a lot, ran a lot of calls that at the time I didn't realize, I guess I wasn't used to it or I didn't expect it. I can't say I wasn't used to, it. I didn't expect to see the amount of death and destruction that I was seeing. And it also didn't register in my mind or what to do with this or where to put this or how it would possibly affect me later. Cause again, 
nobody talked about these things. One of all, I wouldn't say it was one of my first fires, but it was one of the fires that I ran early on right after becoming a firefighter. It was just that 1700. A career staff were getting off work and going home. We were coming in and the alarm went out for a structure fire. I remember specifically one of the engines down the road, the career staff were still on it. They were returning from another call. And it was very unusual for a communication center to tell them to go. And because they marked a returning off duty and they were told, no, we need you to go to this call. They had the information that this was a working fire and they need to get units there. So they rolled, we rolled out of our firehouse. It was in our first due, but because they were on the road, they were the first on the scene that we rolled up right behind them. And there was quite a bit of fire in this house. I ended up joining up with the firefighter from the other engine, a career firefighter, and uh, we made entry. We went through the garage, made entry into the kitchen. Now, lieutenant of this uh, crew, I have a lot of respect for this guy. He'd been on the job for a long time. He also taught all my firefighter classes back then. A guy, he was awesome. He knew his job. He was a great leader, a great fire officer. So we're making entry into this house and going through the kitchen up in the living room. And I'm behind a senior fireman and all of a sudden everything goes dark and stuff's falling everywhere. And I honestly, I really did not know what was going on. I'm glad I was with the senior guy. All of a sudden I start hearing a lieutenant yell, get the fuck out, get the fuck out. And all of a sudden I get grabbed. Come on, let's go, let's go. And we're back through the kitchen and we're diving into the garage and the whole second floor comes down in that house. Like, holy crap, what the hell just happened here? We get up, gather ourselves together. Lieutenant makes sure that we're okay. We start walking out and the garage comes down on us. And the senior guy that I was with, he got injured. We make it outside. Everybody's all right. He's getting taken care of by the, I forget if it was an ambulance or a medic crew was there, to be honest with you, it really doesn't matter. He ends up going to the hospital. The rest of the fire, we're fighting it from outside. It was defensive fire from them. That was a close call. And... If I had been by myself or not with a senior guy, that fire could have been totally different. Looking back on it now, at that point in time, I was thinking, wow, what the hell just happened? Does it give you pause for the future? Does it make you reconsider what you're doing? No, not at all. Didn't think twice about it. Does it, does it make that desire more? Go to more fires, yeah, but it also made a desire to learn more and to become more aware of what's going on. I didn't want to just be a firefighter who was just there for the t-shirt. I wanted to know more. I wanted to know what in the world happened, why did it happen, and what is it that they happened around us and how can I fix, be on top of it. I wanted to be a better firefighter. So it actually fueled my desire to better myself so that I could be the senior guy, so that I could be that guy who's going to know everything that's going all around. It made my drive a whole lot more. So I did, I took a whole lot more classes, but little did I know little things like that would come back in little ways, manifesting itself in nightmares. It happens much later in life. Yeah. I mean, we ran at that point in time in our county, we didn't have the road, the infrastructure. It was just starting to get built. We were running a lot of calls, a lot of bad calls, especially auto accidents, fires with fatalities here and there. There weren't a lot of them, but we did have them. Never really, you know, 
also running the CPRs and suicides and things like that. A lot of these things never really registered in my head that I was seeing them, buried them and just went on about my business and really did not know what to do with them from seeing things. You go in the first time and you see someone hanging. I mean, that, especially when you're 19 years old, that has an effect on you. And you're like, what in the world am I looking at here? Yeah. I was going to say that has an effect on you when you're in your forties and you do that for the first time or the fifth or sixth time. But yeah. I can only really imagine what it is for a 19 year old for the first time. And especially when it's someone that's your age. And that was one of the hardest things that rolling with was dealing with death of other kids. Now I didn't know a lot of these, anybody that had passed away at that time or that I was running, but I'm looking at the people that are my age. And I'm running these calls with them. We had a guy drowned in a hot doing CPR on him. Same age. We had an auto accident. We we're cutting somebody out of a car, just graduated high school. He was about two years younger than me, but again, he died instantly on impact in a car accident. And we're running these calls and I'm thinking to myself, holy crap. A lot of these people that are going out here and helping or not able to help are my age but never really knew what to do with it. Never knew what to put, where to put it. And didn't know if I should even open up and talk about it because nobody talked about things like that in the firehouse. No one opened up. We didn't come back and do hot wash on, okay, we just ran this crappy call. Let's sit down and discuss the call, the goods, the bads, everything. It just didn't happen at that time. It's. It's ironic that you say that because it used to be a question I asked quite often. It would be, Hey, what did you do after that call? Even, I don't know, from the two or three year firemen who have firefighters who have seen their share of stuff or to, to you guys who are retired and out of the game and have seen more than their fair share of stuff. I used to ask it all the time, but it was always the same answer. No, we just didn't do it then. And I think it's a cautionary tale right now because I don't think firehouses do it enough even today. No, I don't think they do. And I could sit there and tell you that later in my career, as I went up through the ranks, we did talk about things, but I don't think we did it as much. And I take that as a fire officer, that's something that I should have done more of. We didn't. If I knew we ran a crappy call, especially when I had a new person on the uh, rookie on the rig, take them aside and just say, Hey, are you doing all right? Is there anything about that call that's bothering you or, but we did not come back and do a lot of hot washes. Um, but I think we also got better at it as things went on. Just quick sight. We, when I took over as captain and had a new crew come in, we were basically a new crew altogether of station. I was assigned to my last assignment and we were running a lot of CPRs, but the CPRs weren't going the way they should go. And we would come back and the medics were like, okay, we need to get together and talk about this. We need to get better at what we're doing. So we did, we would all sit down together. And we would talk about, okay, this is what needs to be done. You need to be doing this. We're going to be doing this. So we did do a little bit more of that later, but like early on in my career or early on when I was in the fire service, we didn't do any of that stuff. If a call went, I guess we just waited for the next call and see if it was going to be better. And side note there, I think I know exactly what medic you're talking about. And I listened to that story in his voice when you said it. So that's, thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was lucky. I had. Two guys on the medic unit and their lieutenant and these two guys, when they worked together, they were, they were awesome. I just loved running calls with them. They had their shit together. So let's go back to the volunteer days as a 19, you're probably about 19 at this time. Cause there was the, 
I know there was the accident on 95 that you talked about on, on Interstate 95. Yeah, uh, I was probably a little bit older with that. At that time, so we had uh, two stations back then, and I went from the one station I started at to the uh, other station so I could start riding on the rescue. Fell in love with that. Being on the rescue, vehicle extrications, and tech rescue really wasn't that big in our county, but it was coming. It was new. So I was involved with taking a lot of classes, any class that I could with the tech rescue stuff. And uh, originally our rescue company was purchased to do hazmat because uh, we were right on Interstate 95. The truck scales were right there in our area. That was originally supposed to be a hazmat station is what the county was moving towards. Um, that ended up not happening. We're not going to get into the political part of that. But once the hazmat was out of it, we... There was a few of us that started going, okay, we're a rescue company. We're going to start doing technical rescue stuff. Yeah. So at that point in time in Virginia, in Northern Virginia, they were starting to put in the HOV lanes, high occupancy lanes. So there was a lot of construction on Interstate 95 from our county all the way up through Fairfax County to DC. And we were running a lot of nasty accidents on 95 because of the just the way they had the Jersey barriers and they were shutting the road down and things like that at night. One night we get, uh, called out for a vehicle accident, uh, a car that was flipped over and then I think it was in a Chevy S10 pickup truck. Guy was coming home, had his son in the car. I don't remember exactly what, how the accident happened, but he ended up getting thrown out of the car. And once a car got done flipping, he was Underneath of it pinned, but the, one of the leaf springs had gone through his shoulder and he was hung up underneath of it. So we got up underneath there to check. He was in bad shape. I don't want to get too gross on here, but uh, basically when I was down there checking him, his head was like a fishbowl. That's what I was looking into. And then he's hung up on the leaf spring. When you say like a fishbowl, and again, I, we don't need to get too, too into the details, but do you just mean that you get get a glimpse into it from the top. Is that yeah, what you mean yeah, by that? Yeah, okay. yeah. The whole All top right. of his head was missing okay. and everything was out of it. It was nasty. His son was in the car still. He was taken care of by EMS and taken out of there. Thank goodness. Cause he didn't need to see this. So we had the dilemma of how are we going to get this guy out of here? What are we going to do with him? I didn't know anything about leaf springs or how to take them apart. We ended up coming up with, we cut him out. And by and cut him out, you actually I mean, mean literally cut him out by cutting him. That was, everything was put on hold. The police were doing their investigations and incident command was uh, discussing it with the hospital. Hospital was completely against us doing anything like that. I do remember overhearing the conversation of, all right, we're going to load him in the car up on a flatbed and bring him to you and you can do it. And that was also said, no, I ended up coming down make it happen, get underneath there and cut him out. So I got underneath there with trauma shears and basically cut his shoulder and cut him down out of the bottom of his car and we pulled him out. It was an ugly scene. There was things everywhere. And that, that just really stuck with me for years from his son in the car crying to what I saw, to what I did to get that guy out of there. It was an ugly incident and we ran a lot of ugly incidents on the interstate at that time, but just because of the construction and people at that point in time, I mean, cars were built different. So people got trapped in their vehicles yeah, exactly. more than what they do now. That's what I was going to say. It's not just construction. It was also car construction. And yeah. Then, yeah there, you, 
it happened much more prevalent. There was much more prevalence to the, to entrapment than we see today. Yeah. Even on a lot of the back roads throughout the county, over time, those roads got widened and things like that, but we were running a lot of vehicle accidents where people were running off of the road, run off the road over correct, slam into the tree. And as the county grew and the infrastructure grew, the road started getting a little bit better. But also vehicle construction started changing. That makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, we had that one. I had one on the day, the night before Thanksgiving. We ran a uh, vehicle accident. It was in another due. We were the second rescue on the call. Well, they, a van, full-size van, rear-ended a flatbed tractor trailer. And she was trapped. The whole dashboard was on top of her. The other rescue company was trying to airbag the truck up. There's a lot of things that went wrong on this call. And I ended up there with hand tools, ratchet with a ratchet and socket and taking the door off because the Hearst equipment got locked up and I was waiting for our equipment to be brought up from our rescue. And it was parked pretty far down from the accident because of the traffic and everything. The whole time I'm sitting there talking to this lady and she's telling, telling me about they're going home to New Jersey to go and be with family and have Thanksgiving. And she's talking like. You and I are talking. Finally get our equipment up, put a ram in place, push the dashboard up off of her, start getting her out of the vehicle, and she crashes. Get her on the cot. Now we're doing CPR on her. Helicopter gets canned. We had a helicopter on the ground waiting for her, and that got canceled. She ended up getting transported to the hospital and passed away that night. I'm thinking, I was just talking to this lady. And now she's dead here on Thanksgiving. This sucks. This sucks. And I got, I was starting now with this one, I'm getting angry. I'm pissed off because this shouldn't have happened. We should have gotten her out quicker. I'm pissed off at the series of events that led to equipment malfunctions and people that were, you know, around. And I didn't know how to deal with this. Now I'm starting to, anger's taking over and I'm not understanding how to deal with that or how to put it or where to put it or what to do with it. And what year was that? Honestly, I truly don't remember okay. what year that was. I know it was, a, that was, it was another construction zone. Yeah. They had everybody starting to funnel down and the lanes were being closed, but I'm not, uh, it was early nineties. Okay. Early nineties. It's not really sure. Hey guys, quick break right here, just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. And so you say you, you start to feel that anger then to, to, to the way things went, to the death, to, to all of that yeah. call again. Not, I know there's no hot wasters, none of that, but what do you do with it then? Shove it down. Okay. Put it somewhere. I just, I guess take it as lessons learned that, Hey, we got to make sure that we don't do this or we don't have mistakes happen. Th things happen. Everybody knows in the fire service, no call goes perfectly all the time. When you're dealing with hydraulic equipment, sometimes it does freeze up. Things do happen. Even today, sometimes things happen and yeah. the equipment is much better. So I can imagine that that happened much more often back then. It did happen, but it didn't, sometimes it didn't have that type of thing. Yeah. But yeah, 
I put it down and just went on with it. And we just, you kept running, go back and you get ready for the next call. You clean up, you get ready for the next call and you go. One of the calls, another one that came up and I'm probably jumping around on years and stuff like this, but uh, one that sticks with me and it stuck with me forever happened on November 22nd, 1990. And this was again, Thanksgiving. We had a police officer shot and killed in our first two that night before we got a phone call at the fire station, which I talked, it was police, police saying, Hey, we got a barricade situation. We need to use your fire to get everybody together. Is it okay that we come over? Oh yeah, of course, whatever you guys need. So that's where they assembled the SWAT, had everybody coming in. We opened the doors up to them and welcomed them in, had coffee for them and everything, whatever they needed, they had it there. It was going to be a long drawn out situation with this individual. Individual, I know, I don't remember what exactly caused him to go on his little rampage, but he shot a, uh, he got pulled over in Arlington County and shot a deputy sheriff there, didn't kill him, but shot him. And then came down to his house here and barricaded in his house. And that's where the incident started was in Arlington County. And so he was barricaded in his house. I went to bed that night or early morning and we wake up to the alarm going off for uh, the ambulance to get uh, go out to the barricade situation. So when I woke up, there was no one in the firehouse besides me and another guy. We ended up taking the ambulance out there and uh, both of us were EMTs and we get out, we meet up with the medic unit that's already on the scene. At that time we had a, uh, 24 hour medic unit assigned to our firehouse. They were already on the scene on the standby. And as soon as we get there, all hell is breaking loose. The SWAT team had made entry into the house. The guy came out, started shooting, and there's an officer down. So me and the medics will go up to meet the officers as they're bringing him out. And they do a quick assessment on him and start CPR on him right away. And all I can remember is looking down at him and I saw his name and thinking, my God, he's just in our firehouse. And I see his badge there in their SWAT, you know, uniform, and they've got the grayed out badges and the name and everything, and just everything's covered in blood. And even to this day, I could sit there and picture that. So we're doing CPR on him, get him loaded up, take him to the hospital, and he gets pronounced. We get taken back to the incident and get told, okay, we're sending another team in to go get the guy inside. We think we have them neutralized or things like that. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way, uh, there's no way I can help this guy. If he's hurt or anything like that, I can't help him with what I just saw. He just killed a man. He just murdered somebody, a police officer. And so he, they go inside, they find that he's passed away, sniper had gotten him. So we didn't have to do anything, which is good. So we ended up getting released from the scene. And, but that whole call, that was just, it was eating away at me. It was bothering me. Went back to the firehouse. I went into the bunk room and went to sleep. And I slept till the afternoon when it was time for me to get up and go home and go have Thanksgiving dinner with my family. So I do that. I go home and all I want to do is just talk to someone. So I'm going home, right? You know what? My stepfather, I can talk to hell get home and start talking to him a little bit and find out that the deputy in Arlington that was shot, he went to police academy with, so he knew him, but that's about where the conversation ended. 
there was, I was looking for somebody to be able to talk to or just let out what it is I saw or what I went through and that didn't happen. So Thanksgiving really sucked. Had dinner and then I packed, okay, bye. And I went back to the firehouse and just, it was a shitty night, but just kind of dealt with it. And when I say dealt with it, I didn't deal with it. I just put it somewhere and just got back onto one of the units. I think I rode to rescue that night and the next morning came and that was it. So just more of that shit, just stuffed, stuffed down. Yeah. Stuffed down. And that was really a hard call to deal with because it doesn't matter whether you volunteer or career, you do have a great work relationship. Most places with the police department. And I think that we did in our county, I had a great work relationship with them and to run a call with a police officer and he's got a family, he's got kids and to have his life taken out like this, it just, it really sucked. And we didn't have anything in place or nobody came into the firehouse to even sit down and say, Hey, are you guys doing all right? I think the career staff or the medic uh, medics on the career unit, they probably had a little bit more going on to help them out. But as far as like being a volunteer, I never saw any of our chiefs come down or nobody come down and say, Hey, we know you guys ran this call with them. Are you guys all right? Yeah. It just, that really sucked. <laughs> and that's just one of those calls that you, again, pushed down and didn't, didn't deal with, really did not put things together that I was actually starting to feel depressed down all the time. Something just isn't right. And I know it's not right, but not sure what it is. And but just life goes on work, not really happy with my jobs. That time I'm also applying to every fire department that I can. And it wasn't easy getting a job as a firefighter. It was a lot of competition, a lot of people. And you had to score really good on these tests. And I just wasn't really getting that. Disappointed in the fact that things weren't working out on the fact that becoming a career firefighter, I'm still taking these tests, still pushing myself to it. And I did have a lot of support behind me. Come on, you gotta get, and getting advice on, oh, you gotta do A, B, and C. You need to start looking at this. Don't give up. Don't give up. So. I where, didn't give up, kept going and going on around. Where is that support coming from? A lot of, uh, mostly from the career staff in our firehouse. I had a very good relationship with those guys. I looked up to them. I wanted to learn from them. They, they were the guys that I really respected a lot. We had a lot of people, people in our, in the volunteer department that I had a lot of respect for. And there were a couple of them that knew I wanted to do, that I wanted to move on, that I wanted to do. I don't want to say more because I don't want to sound like I'm bashing a volunteer organization, but they knew that my goal was to become a career firefighter. So I did have a few people that supported me there, but a lot of my support came from the career staff that worked in our firehouse. Cause I think what I'm getting at is even at this point, cause you've been a volunteer firefighter for six years now at this point, roughly Probably close to roughly. And you're still not getting the support from your family for what you're doing. even though it's obvious that you love what you're doing. Yeah. And like I had said earlier, my grandfather was really pissed off that I became a firefighter, a volunteer firefighter. He thought it was below me to do that. The only person in my family that ever asked me how things were going at the firehouse was my grandmother. My grandmother supported me in everything that I did. My parents didn't want to hear really anything about it. Things were, I don't, 
I wasn't as close to my father at this point in time as I am now. I think just the separation that we had over the years and then me getting into the fire service and things like that, we got, we were close. We didn't really talk a lot and it's after talking to him later, he said that he knew that I needed space. He, he, they stepped back and they gave me that space. They were always there for me if I needed to come to them, but they weren't pressing anything. They knew something was going on, but they weren't going to press it with me because they knew when they pressed things or tried talking to me, I shut down and didn't talk to them. And so they gave me that space. So it was, there wasn't a lot of support. Back to my grandfather, I later found out that one of the biggest reasons why he did not support me being a firefighter is that back in the eighties, my great grandparents lived up in Baltimore. And when my great grandfather was went in his late, his late eighties, he would fall a lot. My grandma should get on the phone, call the fire department to come and help him up because she couldn't do it. She was a very, very petite woman, but frail also in her older age. And he was a big man. One day they came out and picked him up and someone from the fire department, I don't know who it was, yelled at her about calling. This isn't our job. This is not what we were supposed to do. Don't call us anymore. He fell out of bed one night and got wedged in between the bed and the uh, nightstand. And uh, the way he got wedged, cut off his airway and he stopped breathing. So. When he wasn't breathing, that's when she called and he passed away from that. And it's because of that incident, why my grandfather had a hatred towards the fire department. And when I got into it, I guess he thought that I was going to be that person. And that was something I didn't learn until it was after my grandfather's death that I learned much later in life. And it also put in perspective about running those calls with the elderly who fall down. You know what? I'm not going to be that guy and this isn't going to happen to somebody else because I don't want to go on this call. I, that never should have happened, but yeah, I, that kind of put it in a perspective like that, but it also, it would have been nice that there was that support there from family. Even if he'd come out and told me, Hey, this is my feelings. That would have made more sense to me back then instead of just the amount of hatred that he had towards it and things that I was told about what I was doing with my life. Yeah, of course, the support from family is, would be wonderful. You could imagine that it would make that, that what you're doing and what the dedication you're putting into the volunteer side and the life you're living would validate it. Yeah. And uh, there was support later, but it wasn't until after I got the job doing it. When I was on the job, then everything was okay because I was doing it for a living. But when I was doing it as a volunteer, that support wasn't there. So you've got some pretty big calls that you've just talked about, and you talked about feeling that there was, might've been depression even before you started with the volunteers. What's going on now with it? Is it getting, is it, is, has that just worsened as you went through the time? I think it was up and down. There were times that it would come in and I would feel lost where I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing as far as like direction in life. I knew I had to do something. I knew what I wanted to do, but I wasn't getting the job doing it. So I was bouncing job to the job and then going to the volunteer house all the time. It, I did not realize that I was going through or what I was getting into, or it was actually a depression 
until after this next incident that happened in 92, we had a huge fire in a trailer park and that kind of set it off. And after that is when I seek help on my own. So I, I think we can set the scene for this trailer park because I've been there. I know what it is. I've had a fire there before myself and it's closely packed trailers. Yes, it is. And there's very poor water supply. And um, go ahead. Compared to what it was or what it looks like now, what you saw, it was a completely different then. Okay. In and what way? The road leading up to it back then was just a two lane little road, a lot of woods around it. And there were a whole lot more trailers packed into this place. Okay. Back in the early nineties, the trailer park is a little bit more, it's changed over the years, especially with the growth and everything that happened around it. Yeah. We didn't even have a lot of room to park a lot of the apparatus. And one of the, the first in engine where it had parked because of the heat and everything coming off of the fire from the multiple trailers that were on fire, it melted the lights on it and damaged on the paint and everything, or there just wasn't a lot of room in this trailer park. And that's even on a night where it's raining, correct? No, it wasn't raining. Oh, it wasn't raining? No. no. Okay. No. Cause I thought it was muddy out that day. It, it, it was, and that was just from the amount of water that was ah, being poured. Uh, so I misunderstood uh, when we first talked about it, then I apologize. Yeah. That's the amount of water. We had five trailers off reports that there were two kids and a mom missing that they went back, our mom went back into our trailer to go get her kids out. So when we rolled up in the rescue, we were told to start searching trailers and to try and go find the people that were missing. So we did, we started going through and searching trailers as we were going down, hitting every one of these trailers and making sure they're clear. And then we get down to the a trailer that's fully involved. It's gone, the sides have already melted away. We walk in between the trailer where we find the victims at and another one that's off. And then we have a propane tank next to us that's already vented and fire blown out of it. And it was going to slope. So I'm walking in between there and slip in the mud and fall up against this trailer that's on fire. Get up, don't really realize it. Everything's weird feeling on the ground. And the other fireman that I'm with, he gets is watching me with the flashlight as I'm getting up and he gets down there and starts looking and he brings part of this person up and looks at me and goes, is this somebody's leg? And it was one of the victims from in the trailer when the wall had burnt away, the person had rolled out of it and I fell right on top of it. Didn't even realize it. Cause yeah, it was dark there. And the only thing that we had for light was flashlights. And Look this is one of, this is one of the kids you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah, I'll look inside the trailer because the wall had gone. We're right there at the kids' be the bedroom where they were at. And we see the other, his brother in there. And those images are right there burned into my mind. So we make the call. We tell him we found them. Mom was up inside the trailer. We weren't ever to verify that where she was, but she was later found up in the trailer. She had gone back in to try and get her kids out. She ended up passing away trying to get her to save her children. We were at that call for quite a while. It was a mess. We get back to the firehouse and one of the girls at the firehouse trying to do the right thing, making sure that we're taken care of. We had chicken that night. So she took the chicken out, reheated it in the microwave, cooked it a little too much. When I walked into the kitchen, immediately what I smell is brought microwave chicken and I see chicken legs sitting on top of the plate and it just made me sick. I just wanted to throw up, but I was angry. I was pissed. I took the chicken, I threw it away and I was just, the rage that came over me just by seeing that. 
And it was just it, what we had just gone through and what we had just saw. It's that's one thing, but now I, anger's taken over. I'm ticked off. And I, especially now I know it was done out of kindness of our heart and trying to do the right thing for us so we could have something to eat and have something to drink. It was all set up there, but at that point in time, it wasn't taken at that. And I don't remember if I said anything to anybody or her or anyone else. I'm sure I acted like an asshole, <laughs> but it was just everything starting to blow up inside. That incident also was my first time dealing with not peer support, but critical incident stress debriefing. So we had someone in the county that was doing that and everybody was brought down to one of the firehouses, the first two firehouses, they had a bingo hall on the back of it. So. Everybody was invited to come down there to that, go through the critical incident stress debriefing. I didn't want to go. Neither did the guys I was with want to go. We were told we had to. Now we're angry because we're being told we have to go through this. We go into it and I remember sitting back away from everybody. We weren't up in the middle of the whole little kumbaya circle, sitting back and listening to people talk and the whole time I'm going, this shit, this isn't helping us out at all. And someone speaks up and starts with a, this incident bothered me because they wouldn't let us go see the bodies. I want to go see the bodies and they wouldn't let us down there to do it. And I'm thinking to myself, are you effing kidding me? Why in the world do you want to go see? And immediately now I'm angry. I am. It was just like a light switch went off of me and I was furious that this person wanted to go down and see these people that were bumped up in their trailer. And this isn't helping at all. Now, this isn't helping you get this critical into the stress. This isn't helping anything. I'm kicked. So we end up getting our shit together and we leave. We walk out. And that immediately put a very bad taste in my mouth or, and my feelings towards critical into the stress debriefing that it, this is just bull crap. This isn't going to help anybody having to listen to this stuff. But anyway, I also start realizing that, yeah, something's not right. So I sit down and I do talk to someone in our volunteer department and they suggest, you know what, we do have an avenue for you. Go talk to somebody and the department will help pay for it. I'm like, okay, maybe I'll try this. So I did a psychiatrist or a therapist and the department helped me out with it. Went and started talking to them. They're going to them a few times. You're definitely, you've got depression. We need to put you on this medication. We're going to start doing this. And you come back and talk to us and take this meds. Well, okay. I guess if you say the meds will help, we'll take it. Little did I know, well, for me personally, the meds had a totally negative effect. I felt even worse. It just physically felt awful. And then... Because of the meds, suicidal thoughts started popping into my head. And I'm taking these things. I'm telling the psychiatrist this stuff. Keep taking the meds. They're really good for you. How can they be good for me? This isn't right. I feel awful. I physically feel awful. And now I'm thinking about killing myself. What's going on here? So I end up, cause I'm not thrilled with the way things are going. I don't feel that connection with the therapist that I'm seeing. It just, it didn't work. In them. So I stopped going, I stopped taking the meds. So I'm off of those meds. I start feeling better. Hey, I don't need no therapy then. I feel great now. I got some stuff off of my chest and I feel good now. Let's roll with it. 
when really all you felt was the fact that the meds were clearing out of your system and, and kind of lightening your brain a little bit without them being there. Yeah, I'm sure that is a big part of it. So after that, I'm not going to go see anybody or talk to anybody anymore. And I definitely know that I don't want his medication stuff because now I feel better and things are a lot, I wouldn't say a lot clearer, but they're just something totally different now. But during this time, you know, I get into a relationship. I start dating, um, my current wife and applying, get back into applying for fire departments. I got a good steady job. I'm assistant manager for a major paint company that manufactures and sells paint. So things are going pretty good. 95 rolls around. My grandfather passes away. And uh, I knew he was sick. He had a lot of medical things going on, but uh, him passing away, that, that sucked because my family, prior to him passing away, my family had always shielded us from death. I had a grandmother that passed away back in the, my great grandparents passed. I wasn't allowed to go say goodbye to them or go to their funeral. I had a grandmother that passed away in the eighties from cancer. Um, we were there, but we were also shielded from a lot having to do with that, with the funeral and the death and all. This is the first time I'm dealing with passing away. Now, even though my grandfather didn't necessarily like everything that I did and had been, not been completely supportive. I did love the man. He, we spent a lot of summers when we were kids with our grandparents. They took us on a lot of trips to the beach and museums and things like that. They did do a lot with my brother and I when we were kids. So it was a difficult death to deal with, but. I also had my fiance now to lean on and help me through that. Yeah. In 95 would get engaged and I had been applying for departments in the county that where I volunteered at, I applied for them numerous times. Now I'm on the list and I get a phone call. Hey, we just started a recruit school and someone didn't show up today. Can you call, start working two days? Are you kidding me? Of course I could start working two days. Okay. Don't quit your job yet. We have to get things through human resources. I'm like, oh man, this is awesome. I hang up, I call my fiance going, I just got the phone call. I just got the phone call. I'm going to go to recruit school in two days. This is what happened. Next day, I get the phone call saying, hey, we're not going to be able to make this happen. You didn't quit your job, did you? Like, no, I didn't quit my job. I did exactly what you said. And yeah, but yeah, we're not going to be able to make this happen. You're number one on the list for the next school. Okay. So that was disappointing. I really was disappointing. I held on to that help. Hey, I'm number one on the list for the next school now. This is, oh, this is great. Things are starting to come together now. I'm going to be getting married. I'm going to be getting the job that I want. And my fiance gets pregnant. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> All right. Now I'm going to be a dad. Now I need this job. Um, so this happens in 96 when, you know, she gets pregnant. We ended up pushing our wedding up and getting married earlier in July of 96. 96, we were supposed to have the fall wedding. And then that summer also, I get the phone call saying, hey, you want the job still? Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.